Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Got out Cincinnati and 91.7 WVXU HD2 and 1660 AM anytime at outcincinnati.com really is the best way. How are you, Melissa? Well, how are you? I'm doing just fine. Oh, I'm good. Um, I was thinking about my uh, my bear cat years. Oh, yeah. And uh, I was a bear cat and graduated in 05. I love UC. And on today's show, I just want to thank Professor Courier. She is the head of the Department of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies. And the conversation we have, you will learn so much. Very fascinating. And so she is a specialist in international issues, especially concerning Africa. So we delve into the nitty gritty of what is happening overseas. You can find out more about the program of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at artssci, A-R-T-S-S-C-I dot U-C dot E-D-U. Or they got a great Facebook page, W-G-S-S is the acronym, sounds like a radio station, on Facebook if you want to find out more. And they have this really cool certificate that you can get in the department there. And uh, Professor Courier will elaborate on that. So maybe you could be a, a Bearcat someday. Coming up on Out Cincinnati. Hey, this is Jose Rodriguez, Director of Community Relations at Equitas Health. We serve the needs of the LGBTQ community right here in Cincinnati. We're doing amazing things in this city. Get in touch with us at EquitasHealth.com. You're listening to Out Cincinnati. I'm Chris. And I'm Melissa. Ashley Courier is a professor at the University of Cincinnati. She heads the Department of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies. Thank you so much, Ashley, for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be with you. So I was looking at the website. I'm just going to get right to it for WGSS. And I love the acronym, by the way. That's like my thing. Um, artssci.uc.edu. There's a lot under the umbrella. What are some of the topics that are taught in the department? That's kind of how I wanted to start. We run the gamut. We, I mean, the, the department started as a center for women's studies almost 50 years ago. We're going to celebrate our 50th anniversary in 2024. And so we, we have faculty who focus on second wave feminism, women's literature, LGBTQ literature, gender sexuality cinema, African-American women's health, um, b- uh, feminist bioethics, um, gender and health broadly construed, and people like me who work in transnational LGBTQ studies and, and comparing um, LGBTQ organizing uh, across 
um, regions and, and, and nations. Um, so we, we have a, a, there's a lot <laughs> under the umbrella of uh, WGSS. It's actually, we're a, a big, happy family, if you will. You have so many topics that are covered in that department. How do you go about picking a department name and how do you go about making sure that everything is encompassed under that umbrella? Well, one wonderful thing about women's gender and sexuality studies as a really a transdisciplinary field is that we're constantly developing and, and broadening our horizons. Right now, emphasizing um, uh, feminist intersectionality um, perspectives are are incredibly important, centering the voices of Black, Brown, Indigenous, feminists, and people of color, marginalized communities are really at the the, the, the center of uh, women's gender and sexuality studies in the U.S. right now. And we're constantly in dialogue with colleagues at other institutions, with our students who are involved in different um, social movements in Cincinnati uh, and around the world. And we're also in dialogue with the National Women's Studies Association, which is our academic organization that connects women's gender and sexuality studies units across uh, the U.S. A number of, de of departments of women's gender and sexuality studies have moved from designations as women's studies units to either women's gender and sexuality studies units like we have at UC or feminist studies, feminist gender and sexuality studies, gender and sexuality studies. And I've also seen, I think, gender, sexuality and intersectionality studies. There are quite a few variations in um, unit names, and it really reflects, I think, um, the people who are in that department and giving life to the subject in their research, in their classes, and also reflects what students want and need at that particular point in time. I think that we should be open to changing our names to reflect what our students need. Do you think that name could change if studies evolve and has it changed over the years? Because you said, congratulations, the 50, 50th anniversary, you said in 2024. That's amazing. Yeah, I know. It's 47 years of existence here at UC as a, as a unit. I came to UC in 2012. And at that, the department was WGSS. Um, but but before that, the department made a, I mean, had been a, a department of women's studies and made a transition to uh, women's gender, women's gender and sexuality studies, which was a, a conversation uh, that faculty had and, and made that decision to really reflect the breadth and diversity of perspectives. It's entirely possible that, you know, <laughs> the department name might change. But right now, it's a good fit for us because it really does reflect what our students study and what our faculty research and teach. So what are some of the important issues that the department is looking into at this time? I know there are a lot of social issues around gender, about gender constructs. Can you share some of that with us? Certainly. I mean, I think that access to equitable health care is an ongoing issue that our faculty are very good at addressing. Um, a couple of my colleagues, Dr. Carolette Norwood and Dr. Michelle McGowan, are part of a research consortium that focus on people's access to reproductive health care, and they're working from a reproductive justice framework. So reproductive justice, we have very good um, concentration in that area right now. 
we have a, a strength in LGBTQ studies um, transnationally, as I as I mentioned earlier, and a, a, a several faculty work in transnational LGBTQ studies and focus really on LGBTQ organizing across nations. It's quite unusual to have this cadre of of people who are working on and, and have on the ground experience working alongside LGBTQ activists in different places. My colleague, Dr. Amy Lind, has on the ground research experience work, uh, working with feminist and queer activists in Latin America. My work focuses on LGBTQ organizing in Southern and West Africa and a few different countries. Those are some examples of, the I think, the current urgent work that our department addresses. And our students are doing this work, are taking, you know, these uh, contemporary debates about reproductive justice, about LGBTQ rights, and they're applying them in their their own lives as, as a number of our students are activists in their own right. And you're you're mentioning that got me thinking about an Africa question that I had that I had written and, and I want to expand it a little bit. You touched on feminism across the world and LGBTQ across the world and organizing. What's it like outside of our Cincinnati, Ohio bubble to be LGBTQ in the rest of the world? Or And then my more focused question, what's it like to be LGBTQ in Africa? And I know it's even more focused than that. Well, I would certainly encourage uh, listeners to consider picking up the book Finding Out an Introduction to LGBTQ Studies, which is co-authored by two of my colleagues who have since retired, Dr. Michelle Gibson, Dr. Deb Meem, and also uh, a colleague of theirs, Dr. Jonathan Alexander, who works in the University of California system. And their book does a real offers a really good introductory perspective on LGBTQ lives around the world and historicizing the complexity of gender, of lived gender and sexual diversity. Um, Speaking more specifically about the case of uh, LGBTQ lives on the African continent, um, talk about variation. Um, One thing that I, that I like to do with my, my research, um, because my research focuses on organizing, it's important for me as a, as a scholar to center uh, the, perspectives and experiences of LGBTQ activists who are working to transform their uh, communities, their nations, to be more accepting of LGBTQ people, um, and also people who don't um, necessarily identify with the LGBTQ acronym. They may um, be gender and sexually diverse people, but for whatever reason, maybe those identities just don't resonate with them uh, personally. But so that's one thing that um, that has been is important for me to emphasize is that uh, LGBTQ Africans have live extraordinary lives, and um, in some cases they face homophobia and transphobia. Queerphobia is a, is a framework I tend to use um, in my work in my classes. They may experience queerphobia in different forms, but it doesn't constrain them in ways that force them into a closet with the do- where the door is nailed shut, for instance. I really want to emphasize the, the complexity of LGBTQ African lives in, in my work. So in some places, um, you have um, 
you have individuals who do face, much like um, here in the U.S., who face ostracism in their families, right? Being at home during the COVID-19 pandemic is not safe for some uh, queer Africans. On the other hand, it's family has some families are quite accepting. Um, in fact, some family mem- families, especially in societies where their gender diversity uh, tends to be tolerated, you will find that families are quite accepting of of um, gender and sexually diverse kin. It just isn't, you know, it it's not something that gets people riled up. Um, so this is, I mean, it, these are just, again, I'm kind of glossing over, I'm generalizing a little bit right, here. Right, right. But I like, to, I like to push back against perspectives that assume that uh, LGBTQ life on the African continent is so um, sad that um, LGBTQ people on the African continent should be pitied. And that's just not the case at all in my experience. And I was wondering, you focus, uh, you, your focus, what I was reading is on Cote d'Ivoire, Liberia, Malawi, Namibia, and South Africa. And you, it's, it's, there's what, 55 countries in Africa, right? So there's definitely not a, a generalization. Um, I wanted to ask you, and I, this might only interest me, but language-wise, at least with French-speaking Africa, do you know anything about changing pronouns, you know, with uh, with transgender folks uh, and things like that in the French language? Has that been accepted, or is that not a thing in English? Too? Sure, <laughs> there certainly is some shift in in pronoun use, but I think you're 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 seeing quite a uh, shift in just identity categories, gender identity categories. And in some cases in Senegal and Cote d'Ivoire, you have the resurrection, if you will, or resuscitation of different identity categories that were accepting of gender diversity, but they're uh, redeployed, resignified in the present in ways that trans, non-binary, queer people are able to embrace and um, redefine for themselves. So there's just, in some cases you see a um, moving away from what some West African gender and sexually diverse communities might regard as Eurocentric identity categories and the embrace of local parlance to describe and uh, categorize uh, the way they feel, the way they move, um, the way they are in the world, you know, relationally. And in some cases, I mean, much much like, you know, in, in the U.S. context, you have co- queer communities developing their own languages, own terms, and use them in, in conversations. But passersby would know that these uh, innocuous terms actually hold the meaning, hold queer meaning, right? So this is this is like, I mean you see similar kinds of of um, of developments um, that can you know, make uh, light queer life in uh, West Africa or in Southern Africa comparable um, to the the U.S. Uh, context. But you'll find some people who just flat out say, "Look, the certain identity categories like trans." transgender may not work for some Southern or West Africans in part because there is an on they're they're working, they, they find themselves having to work tirelessly against the notion that queerness is an African 
or same-sex sexualities are in African. These are uh, frameworks that have circulated for um, a, a couple of decades now in, in the region. And so re- if they were to use certain um, westernized identity categories, um, then they would – some queer Africans feel that they would be perpetuating this myth that queerness is an African. Um, you also see some um, LGBTQ Africans actually, you know, embracing the the acronym and using it in their 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 work, but also modifying it, modifying the acronym to be localized, more Africanized, and reflect local experience. We're speaking to Professor Ashley Courier from the University of Cincinnati. Professor, what have been some of the recent challenges to LGBTQ people in Africa, particularly we covered a story uh, just a little while ago of an LGBTQ center closing in Ghana because of being, or at least it was temporarily shut down because of concerns about security and the center being attacked. What is the situation generally there as far as safety concerns, is it better in different parts of Africa? So, or is it just overall sort of the same? Uh, what can you tell us about that? I mean, I think it's quite, I mean, a number of different places are, are safe for LGBTQ people and activists. But remember that activists are quite savvy about navigating local conditions and have terrific networks so that they they you know they get alerted if there is a a group of um neighbor uh, neighborhood residents who are unhappy for instance with an activist organization's location in their uh, neighborhood right and so moving to close an office um vacate the space temporarily relocating to another part of a city these are all um actions that savvy activists take on an ongoing basis. So one thing that I like to emphasize is um, in, in, in my work and in, in documenting the work that I do is that even though some LGBTQ activists, for instance, may face uh, certain kinds of uh, violence, when it comes to the kind of work that they're doing, uh, for instance, in relation to criticizing uh, government stances, on gender sexual and sexual rights they can also be lumped together with other social movements that oppose the ruling party the government in power and may face the same kind of uh, harassment violence that other social movements do so that's so so, so their you know the fate of lgbtq activists um, are is often tied up uh, with those in different kinds different movements um, especially if they take uh, an, an oppositional stance. I can tell you a story briefly um, that happened a few years ago in Abidjan after then president, U.S. President uh, Barack Obama, I believe this was 2013, he was visiting Dakar, Senegal. And uh, this was just on the, the heels of the Supreme Court ruling that was paving the way for for the same-sex marriage equality in the U.S. And he called on um, Senegalese President Macky Sall to take steps in Senegal to decriminalize same-sex sex. And Macky Sall, President Sall, 
turned again and said, look, you know, the, the U.S. government is not necessarily in a position to to tell African governments how what stance that they should take on LGBTQ rights because the U.S. government has flip flopped quite a bit on uh-huh. on LGBTQ <laughs> rights over over the yeah. years. And but what happened in 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 Cote d'Ivoire is that that just 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 a month or two earlier in France, the the, the government had passed legislation that recognized domestic partnerships between same sex partners, and the French embassy in Abidjan decided to give I think it was about fifty thousand U.S. dollars to a local LGBTQ activist organization that also provided services and education uh, around HIV AIDS to gender and sexual minorities in the the country. And the organization hosted a signing ceremony for this to commemorate this, what was for the organization a fairly large sum of, of money to support their advocacy work in the area of HIV AIDS and LGBTQ rights organizing. Well, uh, activist, uh, Activists associated with the organization took photos, p- posted photos to Facebook, and local journalists picked up on the. They, they were not invited to the uh, signing ceremony, uh, but but they picked up on this this donation of, of funds from the French embassy to the to this Ivorian organization. And local journalists, some local journalists, began to spin this story as the French government is giving this Ivorian LGBTQ organization funds to legalize same-sex marriage. And okay. this, or- this organization, I mean, keeps a low profile in its neighborhood. It doesn't have a sign out. It rents office space. It operates in a residential neighborhood. But everybody knows that it's an LGBTQ organization office. Um, because lots of people are coming and going during the day. And uh, this started to anger, I mean, with the politicization of this story. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Um, and the accusation that the organization was going to be trying to advocate for, for marriage equality, which it wasn't. The neighborhood residents got angry and they began to mobilize against the, the organization and some neighborhood residents. And this was just a, you know, this was very local. This was kind of like a not in my backyard movement. And they actually began to, uh, I think they assaulted a security guard who worked there overnight, you know, put up um, and uh, put up uh, homophobic graffiti in French on the the organization's rented office space. 
in. But the organization, interestingly, had ties to United Nations peacekeepers. There was a United Nations peacekeeping mission in uh, Abidjan um, after the there was a civil unrest in the 2000s. And so the UN peacekeeping forces actually responded. And you have, I mean, there are images of them kind of patrolling outside this LGBTQ activist organization's office space, which is a very kind of interesting juxtaposition of very local, anti-queer neighborhood level hostility to an organization's presence, national, the emergence of a specific national, you know, episode of homophobia, and then connecting to the United Nations concerns about not just national stability in Cote d'Ivoire, but also about ensuring LGBTQ equality, right, which is one of it, you know, the UN's platforms. So very, very interesting kind of, my, you know, microcosm showing all of the complexity of LGBTQ politics in West Africa. Hi, this is Emily Meyer from Equality Ohio's Legal Clinic. You can find out more about our legal clinic and the services we provide and submit an intake form at equalityohio.org. Coming up next on Out Cincinnati, part two of our interview with Professor Ashley Courier from the University of Cincinnati. Now, one thing that I've been interested in updating my knowledge about is the outbreak of AIDS in Africa and how that is still affecting the population there and how that works in with the LGBTQ plus community there. I I know there's probably a different dynamic than there is here with that. There are similar dynamics, actually, when it comes to funding LGBTQ activist organizations. I mean, a number of the better resourced uh, LGBTQ organizations got their start as organizations that were really uh, catering to men who have sex with men, you know, an MSM category, which in some, actually in some, some African countries, MSM has emerged as its own identity category, right? It was meant to describe sexual behavior, you know, in a public health lens, but has emerged in some cases as a, as a sexual subjectivity or a sexual identity for some cisgender men. The, but that because there has been such an interest in foreign donors and philanthropists to to really put money into HIV, AIDS, education, prevention, and treatment, money that that flows to LGBTQ um, activist organizations uh, in southern, west, in even East Africa have really tended to have more programs for men who have sex with men and then also more recently for uh, transgender women. And uh, one thing I can tell you that transgender women and transgender feminist activists in uh, southern Africa in particular have pushed against is this continue continuing lumping together of gay bisexual men with transgender women right they're they're saying that that, that, that we need different um, mo- ways to address right HIV the the, the the trajectories of HIV AIDS in the lives of trans women for instance um so that's actually something that's emerged more recently but you do see a num you know the that the, the HIV AIDS has been a 
really important mode for how organizations actually advocate for LGBTQ rights. So through the public health angle has been a really actually safer way for some LGBTQ African activists to advance their causes. Um, You can make a case for decriminalizing same-sex sex through HIV AIDS and public health, right? I mean, if people have to worry about getting arrested for, you know, having sex with a, a person they love, right? They're going to remain underground and they may not come and, and seek um, health care or services that will help get that would put them in the pathway, for instance, of HIV AIDS um, prevention, education and treatment uh, services. So you, you do see that as a kind of a legal strategy that some people have taken through public health as a way to tackle certain legal obstacles like the continuing persistence of anti-sodomy laws in some countries like Malawi, Namibia, places where I've done research. So those are just a couple of ways that HIV AIDS has interest, I mean, has importantly affected the trajectory of um, LGBTQ organizing in Southern and, and West Africa and continues to be, I should say, an important source of funding for uh, different organizations. And Professor Courier, since you focus on organizing in your research, I think about organizing and I think about, you know, progress with LGBTQ rights. What is, and I want you to answer the question if you can for what you, for what you studied in Africa and then your opinion for the United States, what is the next big obstacle uh, or, or challenge? Because I know we had marriage equality in 2015 in the U.S. and folks kind of thought, well, the fight's over. And it's not, obviously. So just a parallel between the two. I really think that addressing, I mean, if people take the perspective, it it really kind of comes down to where you are, I think, in the kind of like privilege and oppression spectrum, right? If you don't think there's anything (laughs) left fighting for, then you may not be interested in LGBTQ liberation or queer liberation, right? Right. right. Which is more exactly. Of a, exactly. Yeah, which is more of a radical, I think, political perspective. And you certainly do see, I mean, complacency, uh, corporatization. I think those are some big co-optation. These are big concerns. And I think siloing is also another concern. So if 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 an LGBTQ movement is solely focused on gender and sexual diversity issues to the exclusion of working across boundaries to work cooperatively with other social movements in the interest of advancing a, a social justice that really is advocating for racial, ethnic, gender, sexual, religious, national equality, right, then then you're you're, go- you're going to be stuck with a very narrow understanding of what it means to be LGBTQ, and there are different. I mean, there are. I mean, locally, nationally, transnationally, there are all kinds of partnerships to be had, right? And and I think that's a big a big concern um, for c- certainly in the U.S. context, but definitely, in, you know, I think the the African con- context. You see, I think movements. I mean, organizations recognizing how much they need other social movements 
it makes no sense. I mean, if our if our lives are are really interwoven with one another, it makes no sense, right? For social movements to be so segmented and siloed, it makes sense for there to be a lot of cooperation, and I in coalitions, right? I'm a firm believer that you know coalitions, coalitions may exist for a short period of time. And they live their purpose. They work on a campaign, and if the the camp, you know, if they achieve some of their goals with that campaign, maybe the coalition disappears. It doesn't. The coalition doesn't need to exist for the sake of of existing. So I do believe that you know, at different points in time and in space, certain kinds of of, of political partnerships are necessary. And I think we have to be open to those pivots um, to, to, to work for, you know, a, a really a comprehensive uh, queer liberation, which in, at least in my personal and also professional view, doesn't just stop with family rights. That sort of leads me into the topic that Chris and I often encounter on this show is there seems to be some splintering uh, in the LGBTQ plus community around trans issues, all these things, are we in danger of the coalition splintering over these issues? Or do you think that there's conversations that can be had that can bring everybody together again on these issues? I think that you, I mean, as, as at least in the case of, you know, LGBTQ organizing in the U.S., as the movement becomes more complex, and I think this, I mean, and I think in terms of its growth, you, you just, I mean, it's with complex organizations, you get splintering, it's just a fracturing. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. In terms of from from the from the because you you have you have new perspectives being brought in to the movement and you also have activists honing and sharpening their perspectives on um, different uh, topics. In some cases, you'll find that activists say will say, uh, you know, look, this is not an issue on, uh, that we're going to work on. Just for for what for different reasons, in other cases, it will you know be the death knell of an organization. For instance portraying like an LGBTQ movement, movement as being unified is uh, tricky <laughs> it, it because it hasn't it's never it really hasn't ever been unified you have a you know multiple voices if, if you if, if you have a, a an LGBTQ movement that really reflects uh, constituents on the ground who have different lived experiences who are coming from different experiences of and, and uh, of marginalization um, through through experiences d- dealing with racism sexism um, uh, queer uh, different forms of, of queer phobia classism ageism ableism and so on I think that you really um, have to have a, a movement that is grappling with its complexity and so these growing pains are good I think um, now I'm not saying I'm not you know you'll see that I haven't directly grappled with some of the specific issues that you that you raised sure. but it shows i think that that, that understanding that trajectory of movements are you know are full of stops and starts 
are full of, of, again, those growing pains, but also the way the, the movement has unfolded in the, the U.S. is not the way the movement has unfolded in South Africa or Namibia, for instance, for instance, on on the question of transgender inclusion, really. I mean, and I have seen in South, you know, South African Namibian organizing in the 1990s, the inclusion of trans rights and trans people really from the outset of activist organizations emergence. And in some cases, lesbian, gay, bisexual activists were, were holding space for trans activists to emerge and speak for themselves. And that that it, it had its own set of uh, ethical dilemmas and political um, dilemmas for, for activists. But it's inter- it's a different way of, uh, different um, emergence, mode of emergence than from what you see in thinking about LGBTQ organizing in the US case. What we're interested in in discovering is not really the arguments for and against each topic, but rather is how do we have a conversation and how do we keep the tone of that conversation from being um, completely hostile and indignant? You know, how do we respect each other in our own spaces and still have these very, what can be sometimes difficult, really difficult topics and subjects for people to discuss. So how do you think or or how do you think people can create that space in our community to discuss these uh, topics? I mean, Chris and I, this is what we do in order to create that space. We try to cover the topics just in general to talk about. But as a professor, how do you try to create that space for the conversations to happen? Well, I I do try to select um, issues, um, moments in time where um, students in particular are able to see the complexity of an issue. Um, so it doesn't help me to just reduce something to, you know, two sides. That's really, I think, a, a, a problem, right? When we get stuck in a binary of either or, that's not helpful. So I do try to I do try to present things in terms of both and, but also really seeing a multifaceted perspective on when it comes to you know, issues of importance to LGBTQ activists in places where I've done research, but also in the in the U.S. context, and that's really for me a. a, a with lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Starting place for um, raising some of these uh, questions, but then also, you know, really getting to the, trying to understand and also what was the what was the catalyst for politicizing an issue for a group that's also really important right presumably um just to give the example that you raised around um some lesbian activists for instance taking a position on 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 trans equality or 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 trans girls participation in sports 
what was that moment for uh, like a, a lesbian group or to, to 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 take on this issue, right? When did this this issue become politicized at a point that it really kind of saturated the 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 viewpoint of uh, a lesbian activist group, right? At this particular moment in in time. So, what is it about the emergence of a certain kind of ideology that's circulating in Europe, in North America? Um, right now, um, that, that, that is taking hold, right, in certain lesbian gay rights spaces, for instance. Um, so that's something that I, I, I really try to understand is what is politicizing this issue at a particular point in time, and, and even beyond, even be, before we get to the point where we have lawmakers who are proposing legislation to keep trans girls, right, from participating in sports, for instance. We're speaking with Professor Ashley Currier from the University of Cincinnati. She is the head of the Department of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies. Uh, if you want to check out more, easiest way on Facebook, UCWGSS. Uh, we are talking about uh, communication and politicization, and I'm going to use the word coalition. Are there coalitions, say, for example, say Sweden is really nailing gay rights or LGBTQ rights, say they're really nailing it, and I'm sure they are. Is there a way that they could talk to, say, a country that's not doing such a great job and kind of exchange ideas? They have been for, in the, in the case of Sweden, they have been for a few decades now, actually. So who, <laughs> who's not listening? Because I, I know the question sounded really simple. Who's not listening? <laughs> well, it's also how, it, but it's also how um, the, so it's, I mean, the, the message is often coming through money, the form of money. So whether it's the Swedish International Development Cooperation or um, Agency, excuse me, I think it goes by CIDA, S-I-D-A, um, is a group that has fun, has given lots of funding to LGBTQ and HIV AIDS activist organization, um, organizations, particularly in Southern Africa over the, over the years, um, particularly in the 1990s and, and 2000s. But it's how, you know, it's how they give the money. I mean, for a while, they were funding um, organizations in ways that would allow LGBTQ African activist organizations to begin to employ members of their community. In, and these are, you know, I mean, we know that LGBTQ people, um, when they face queer phobia in their communities, might be more likely to leave school or may experience right. unemployment, underemployment and finding work. Paid employment is tough; can be tough, and so getting 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 the experience in a in an office setting in an activist setting is can be quite profound and in 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 really have a meaningful transformation in you know LGBTQ young people's lives. So the, when you have, I mean that that but funding the mode of funder, funding has tended to has shifted from foreign donors like CETA, different governments, different agencies, philanthropies, has been focused more on short-term projects. And these are projects that are like, let's do research, which is helpful, right? Around, you know, getting persuading lawmakers to change a law or policy. But that money doesn't necessarily stay in the community. That money doesn't pay, help the activist organization pay rent or pay salaries of activist leaders, and that um, that that money often sometimes if they if it's a if it's a project, um, they they pay consultants sometimes who are actually live outside the country, 
and fly in to do research and submit a report and fly out. And so the money, all all this advice is very complex, uh, Professor Currier, all this free exchange of ideas, just not listening. How do you get folks to like listen to the good ideas of another country and not make it about money? And I know if you had the answer to that question, we wouldn't be on this radio show. (laughs) Interesting is that, that they're giving money to, to allow organizations on the ground to, you know, to pursue LGBTQ rights in their own way. Right. So it's, not necessarily, okay, we're going to come in and tell you exactly how to, you know, pursue LGBTQ rights, but they're giving money in a way that's not allowing, right? Then, I mean, if you're, I saw a call recently for, and I'd never seen this kind of call from a, from a U.S. um, philanthropy before that was actually going to give money to support activist infrastructure. I mean, we're talking office space, we're talking salaries, this is high. I mean, that for me, that was radical <laughs> in terms of really supporting, um, taking, you know, taking the fact that activist safety is a huge issue on the continent for people. I mean, you have to have safe houses in some places because activist safety is is threatened in ways that means that they, you know, from time to time they have to move houses in the middle of the night. That that kind of in, you know having that in movement infrastructure is lacking in in a number of Southern African, West African, East African nations. So you know relying on friends and family is is great, but what happens if you got you know um, an, a network where you know there's someone who's uh, not so friendly to LGBTQ people and and turns you in? Right, you're you're vulnerable to those kinds of, of of threats. So that's, I mean, I think that's a big, an ongoing issue for a number of different social movements is that lack of of, of movement movement infrastructure that allows them. Right, if you don't have to worry about where you're going to sleep at night, or you know where your next paycheck is coming from, you can really do you can really do some in, incredible political work on the ground, um, and put pressure on. Um, uh, leaders in your community and in government. That is uh, all of that. Um, the, the perspective that you have on that, I, I just um, it, it fascinates me. It's something that I think people need to know about. Um, I want to thank you for your time. I just want to give you the chance to kind of talk about the department if you want to add anything. I want people to know that the Department of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies has a new uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer. Uh, studies undergraduate certificate. It's a 15 credit hour undergraduate certificate. It's a credential that people can get. You don't have to be an undergraduate student currently at the University of Cincinnati to get it. You can be a working professional and enroll in uh, our, our our certificate and get this amazing um, credential. And uh, it's something that people can complete in a, in a year. We offer the classes um, in the fall and spring uh, semesters on a predictable cycle so that people, if they wanted to get the um, certificate in a year, would be able to. But um, it's long overdue. In the past, the University of Cincinnati has gotten a 4.5 out of 5 on the Campus Pride Index, which measures, as, as many of you all know, the um, how friendly uh, a campus is to LGBTQ students, staff, and faculty. And we're hoping that with the introduction of the certificate that finally the University of Cincinnati is going to be able to score a perfect 5 out of 5 on the Campus Pride Index. Um, so it's, it's a it's a 
wonderful certificate um, as soon as I became to permit head um, in uh, uh, fall 2019 I started to work on creating the certificate and I'm thrilled that it exists because it reflects um, my experiences and the experiences of uh, so many of our, our students staff and faculty Professor Courier, I just want to thank you for your time today. Uh, if you want to check out more information about the department, uh, WGSS on Facebook, artsci.uc.edu, and a quick Google uh, to find out more information about uh, the Department of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at UC. Thank you so much, Professor Courier. It's a pleasure to be with you. Hello, this is Michael Chanick, otherwise known as Mother Goose, and you're listening to Out Cincinnati. I never knew that much about Africa ever, Melissa. I didn't either, and I think it's really interesting um, how the issues are the same, but they are also different. Yes, and I think that the takeaway for me was you ask Professor Courier about the communication and who can organize because that was her her specialty for her research is organizing. And so you ask her about all this and we had all this talk about money and salaries and helping LGBTQ organizations. My takeaway was a good ounce of listening would also help, you know, internationally with LGBTQ rights. Well, um, and anyone yeah. who is interested, that certificate is now available at the University of Cincinnati. So if you are interested in finding out more about that, you can go to... You can check out artsci.uc.edu or you could just give the uh, LGBTQ certificate a Google because the links are quite hairy at UC. I will just let you know. One website that is not complicated is outcincinnati.com. If you head there, you'll be listening to the show in five seconds, I swear. OutCincinnati.com. You've got OutCincinnati at 91.7 WVXU HD2 at 1660 AM anytime at OutCincinnati.com. The best website in the world.